Last week in John's Gospel, we watched the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We watched right up to the point where Jesus cried, It is finished, and gave up his spirit. And at one level, the passage we're going to look at this morning is about what happened immediately after that moment between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. This passage gives us details of his removal from the cross and his burial. But that is not all this passage is about. It's also about the significance of Jesus' death. These verses challenge us not to rush on to the resurrection. That's what we might want to do. We might want to get past this dead body, bloody and torn as it is. So we can move on quickly to the empty tomb. But these verses challenge us to pause and understand the crucial importance of this dead body. We're going to pick up in John chapter 19, verse 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 42. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1088, and in the larger print Bibles, 1684. John 19, beginning at verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and find that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is God's Word. And it tells us, first of all, we cannot ignore the crucified Son of God. 
That's what many people would like to do. That's what the Jewish leaders here in our passage would like to do. They have got what they wanted in the sense that they've managed to get Jesus executed. And now they want him out of the picture completely. Verse 31 says it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So this is Friday. The Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday. This Sabbath is special because it's the Sabbath of Passover week. And the point to notice is the start of the Sabbath is only hours away at this point. And the Jewish leaders want Jesus' body out of the way before then, along with the bodies of the two criminals crucified with him. And we might wonder, what's the urgency as far as the Jewish leaders are concerned? Why is it so important to them that these bodies are removed? Well, we noticed earlier in John's Gospel, the Old Testament law said anyone hung on a pole was under God's curse. It also said that bodies were not to be left on a pole overnight because, the law said, that would desecrate the land. In other words, it would be an offense. And since the Sabbath is a holy day, and this particular Sabbath is a special one, presumably it would be doubly offensive to leave these bodies hanging on the crosses. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, the best thing that can happen is to get Jesus' body out of sight so it can also be out of mind, and they can get on with doing their religious things. With Jesus out of the picture, we can get back to worshiping God. And so verse 32 tells us, they ask the Roman governor Pilate to have the legs of Jesus and the other two men broken. We noticed last week, victims of crucifixion died by suffocation. In order to get air into their lungs, they had to push themselves up with their feet. And death came when they finally had no more strength to push. It could take days for someone to get to that stage. And after death, the Romans would normally leave the body on the cross to be devoured by the vultures. The idea was, the more gory the spectacle, the more of a deterrent it was to other criminals. So death by crucifixion was usually a very prolonged process. But if for some reason the Romans wanted to speed up the process, they used an iron mallet to smash the victim's legs. And then death came very quickly. The person on the cross couldn't push up with their legs anymore, so they couldn't get any more air into their lungs. The Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have that done. But verse 33 says, when the soldiers come to Jesus, surprisingly, they find that he is already dead. Now, that's no surprise to us, of course, if we've been reading John's Gospel, because we know Jesus didn't die by suffocation. He gave up his spirit. He laid down his life voluntarily on the cross. That's why he died much more quickly than would be expected. And there are two practical results of Jesus' quick death. First of all, the soldiers don't actually use their hammer on Jesus. They don't break his legs. 
And second, they do pierce his side with a spear. Roman soldiers were professionals. They needed to be certain Jesus hadn't just fainted on the cross. So rather than battering his legs, one of the soldiers reaches up and makes the much simpler move of plunging a spear into Jesus' side. And verse 34 says, that spear thrust produces a sudden flow of blood and water. Medically, the blood comes from the heart, and the water comes from the covering round the heart, the pericardial sac. But why are those two details significant, the pierced side and the unbroken legs? Well, the most obvious significance is those two details tell us Jesus is dead. These professional soldiers didn't break his legs because they realized he was dead. And they confirmed that realization with a spear thrust in his side. Now, there have always been theories throughout the history of the church from the very earliest days. There have been theories that Jesus only fainted on the cross. But those theories have always faced two massive obstacles. The first obstacle is the professional thoroughness of these soldiers. Their lives depended on their thoroughness. They were not allowed to make mistakes in this kind of way. They knew how to distinguish a dead body from a not quite dead body. The other obstacle to the idea that Jesus just fainted on the cross is that his resurrection would then be no more than a case of a half-dead man regaining consciousness for a while before dying later from his wounds. And that does not explain how his disciples became convinced he had entered into death and overcome it by rising from the dead. If the resurrection had been nothing more than Jesus regaining consciousness for a few hours, his disciples would not have given their lives to proclaiming the message of the resurrection. And in many cases, those disciples were killed because they wouldn't stop proclaiming that message. People do not give their lives for something they know to be untrue. So the actions of the soldiers confirm that Jesus really did die on the cross. And Bruce Milne explains the significance of that fact for us. It shows that God the Son enters into the full reality of death. Not merely walking with us right up to the door, only to pull back at the final second, leaving us to walk the dark valley on our own. No, he comes all the way with us. And so when you and I face death ourselves, we can face it knowing our Savior has gone ahead of us. He has traveled that territory already, and he has mastered it. No one is excited by the prospect of experiencing death. But we do not need to fear the experience of death. We do not need to fear it because we belong to the one who has gone right into death 
and emerged on the other side. That's the most obvious significance of what the Roman soldiers do and don't do to Jesus. But John wants to show us a deeper significance to this as well in the facts of Jesus' unbroken legs and his pierced side. And that's why he emphasizes in verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. John is talking there about himself. Back in verse 26, we learned he was standing nearby when Jesus was crucified. Now, Initially, John had scattered with the other disciples, but at some point he came back and he stayed to see what the soldiers did and didn't do. He wants to emphasize that fact for us. Why? Of all the things John is telling us, why would he choose this particular point to underline that he's an eyewitness to these things? Well, it's not just because he wants us to be sure Jesus actually died. There's another significance to these things. They show that we cannot ignore the crucified Son of God. Firstly, because he is especially precious to God the Father. Verse 36 picks up on the fact that the soldiers didn't break Jesus' legs. In reference to that, John says in verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We've seen that Jesus died despised and rejected by human beings. He died under God's curse as he took our sin on himself. But... Now that Jesus has laid down his life, God the Father makes it clear his son is especially precious to him. The Father did not send his son to earth because he could happily spare his son. No, sending his son was the greatest possible sacrifice for the Father. This is the one and only son. This is his beloved son. Well, how does this verse tell us that? Verse 36. Well, in the Old Testament, the instructions for Passover specified that none of the lamb's bones were to be broken. You can read that in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. The lamb was a sacrifice and it was a precious sacrifice. It was to be treated with special respect. Not one of its bones were to be broken. And in Psalm 34, we also read this. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. One of the things the New Testament teaches us is that however much the words of the Psalms are relevant to you and me, they are most relevant to Jesus Christ. They are ultimately about his experience. And here, this is not a promise that none of God's people will ever have to wear a plaster cast. No, this is a promise that God's son Jesus 
the perfectly righteous one, the spotless Passover lamb, would be cared for by his father, even in death. Once sin had been paid for on the cross, once the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin had been drunk to the last drop, Jesus' body would not continue to be brutally mutilated. Even in this period when Jesus is dead, even in these hours before the resurrection, already the Father is watching over the body of His Son. Lovingly, protectively watching over it. The full sacrifice had to be made, but once that sacrifice had been made, the Father stepped in to end the disfigurement. And as you and I consider this, as we consider the preciousness of the Son to His Father, how could we ever think it would be okay for us to ignore the Son and His sacrifice? How could we ever think the Father would be okay with us turning away from His precious, precious Son? despising his sacrifice. How dare we think that? How could we ever escape God's wrath if we turn away from his crucified son? And if we ever get the idea there might be other ways to the Father, other solutions to sin, other saviors from sin, if we ever get ideas like that, the way to see the foolishness of those ideas is to consider the Father's special love for His one and only Son. As we see the Father here tenderly watching over His Son's body. Can't you see, if there were other ways, the Father would have taken those ways instead of this way. The Father sent His precious Son to die because this was the only way. Another reason we cannot ignore the crucified Son of God is because cleansing and life flow to us from His death. Verse 37 points out the significance of the spear thrust back in verse 34. Jesus' body is not mutilated any further. It's not broken anymore. But it was pierced in a way that led out this flow of blood and water. And look how John explains the significance of that in verse 37. As another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. John is quoting a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Here is the fuller quotation from Zechariah. God says, look into the future, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, in the original context, that promise is a bit of a riddle. 
God says they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And he also says they will mourn for him. Well, the cross explains the riddle. God will be pierced. He will experience death in the person of his son, Jesus. And look what the pierced one will produce. Look what will happen in those who look on him. Mourning. Bitter grief. In the context, that means mourning and grief that lead to repentance. How do we know that's what it means? Well, look how the prophecy goes on. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So those who look on the pierced one and respond with grief that leads to repentance, they will be washed. They'll be washed in the cleansing fountain that flows from the pierced one. That was the prophecy. And here in John 19, the fulfillment of that prophecy is symbolized in the blood and water that flow from Jesus' side. His sacrificial death is the fountain that purifies us from every sin. So how do you and I benefit from this fountain that God has opened up? How do we plunge into it for cleansing and life? We recognize our own part in the death of God's Son. We acknowledge that our own sin sent Jesus to the cross. It wasn't just everybody else and the terrible things they have done. It was us too. On the cross, he was paying for our sin. We own up to that reality and we mourn for what our sin did to Jesus. We grieve bitterly over what our sin cost Jesus. And we allow that bitter grief to drive us to repentance. We allow it to turn us around from being men and women who defy Jesus by trying to be lords of our own lives. We repent of that. We turn from it. And we put all of our hope in the cleansing and life that flow from Jesus' death. What if we refuse to do that? What if we don't come to mourn and grieve bitterly over the one we have pierced? Then we will not benefit from God's fountain of cleansing and life. Instead, we will do our mourning and grieving when this life is over. And we are forever cut off from God's fountain. We will mourn and grieve with no more opportunity for cleansing and life. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, makes that clear. It again quotes from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They will look on the one they have pierced. But this time that prophecy is quoted in the context of Christ's return. To judge the earth. To bring eternal judgment on those who rejected him. 
And just to be clear, when the Bible speaks about the mourning and bitter grief of those who are eternally cut off from Christ, it does not suggest their mourning and grief would lead to repentance. If only they had a chance to repent. Not at all. The Bible does not lead us to believe hell will be full of people who want to accept Jesus if only they were allowed to do so. What the Bible shows us is people who hate their punishment but refuse to repent. They mourn and grieve for themselves. They do not mourn and grieve for what their sin did to Jesus. We cannot ignore the crucified Son of God. If we will not mourn now over what our sin did to him, we will later mourn for ourselves for all eternity. Let's give thanks to God that today there is a fountain available to us. Let's come to Jesus, the one we have pierced. Let's come to him and be cleansed from our sin and impurity. The last verses of this passage show what happens to us when we see the crucified Son of God for who he really is. Recognizing the truth about the crucified Son produces courage and reverence in us. Look at verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Until Jesus' death, both Joseph and Nicodemus were too afraid to stand up and be counted as disciples of Jesus. But when they see him die, they find new courage. They publicly identify themselves with Jesus. It seems that both Joseph and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Presumably, when the Sanhedrin was making the decision to put Jesus to death, Joseph and Nicodemus either voted against the decision or, taking their fear into account, maybe they abstained from that vote. But now, what they do is going to make them both outcasts from the Sanhedrin. They are joining Jesus in being despised and rejected. Previously, we're told Nicodemus came to see Jesus secretly. He came at night under cover of darkness. But now, this is in broad daylight. In broad daylight, he and Joseph come together in full view of everyone and they claim Jesus' body. So we have to ask, what made the change in these two men? Where does this courage come from? Well, we're not told directly, 
But we have to assume it comes from the same sort of consideration John has just opened up to us when he quoted the Old Testament in verses 36 and 37. Joseph and Nicodemus are leaders in Israel. And at least Nicodemus is one of Israel's teachers. Joseph may be as well. These men know the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus had always insisted the Old Testament scriptures testify about him. Joseph and Nicodemus' new courage comes from somewhere, and it is not far-fetched to see it coming from their knowledge of the Old Testament. As they look on the one they have pierced, as they see that not one of Jesus' bones was broken, as they make those Old Testament connections, they finally come to see Jesus for who he is. They realize what he accomplished on the cross, dying as the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What that means is, during his life, Jesus' words and Jesus' miracles were not enough to bring these men into the open as committed disciples. Jesus' words and miracles were not enough to make them willing to face human rejection for Jesus' sake. But now, Jesus' death has brought these men to life. And that highlights something that's true today as well. It is not enough to like Jesus' teaching. It's not enough to be attracted by his miracles. It is only his crucified body that can give us life. He didn't come to teach and do miracles. He came to die as our substitute. And if you and I don't see the life-saving truth of Jesus' crucified body... If you don't see the power of his death, we will never come spiritually alive. We will forever be dabblers in the truth of Jesus. Poking around the edges of who he is. Grasping hold of secondary things about him. Never truly benefiting from the real work that he came to do. Does that describe you? Are you a dabbler in the truth of Jesus? Do you stay at the edges? Maybe taking some of his teaching and trying to put it into practice. Praying sometimes for him to use his power and get you out of some difficulty you're in. If that is you, It's time to stop dabbling in Jesus and look directly at his crucified body. It's time to come to terms with what his crucified body means. It's time to consider what was achieved by his death on the cross. Do that and you'll find life. You'll find the courage to step forward and go public as a follower of Jesus. 
You'll find the courage to be baptized as an unashamed announcement of where your allegiance and your hope rest. As Christians, our hope does not rest on Jesus' teaching or his miracles. As important as those things are, our hope does not rest on those things. It rests on the saving sacrifice he made on the cross. It rests on the cleansing and life that flow to us from his death. Recognizing the truth about the crucified son transformed Joseph and Nicodemus from dabblers to courageous disciples. It also produced great reverence in them. Look at the middle of verse 39. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Because of the shame associated with crucifixion, because it was used on the worst kind of people, the bodies of crucified victims, if they were buried at all, they were buried in a mass grave. And we noticed earlier, they normally weren't buried. They were left on the cross for the vultures. But if a body was taken down and buried, no Jew would put the body in a family tomb. That would desecrate the tomb. But here, Joseph has seen the significance of the body he's dealing with. And he puts the body in a new tomb. A tomb that cut into the rock. Matthew's gospel tells us this was Joseph's own tomb. And it's in a beautiful place. A garden. Joseph was obviously a wealthy man. And that's also seen in what he and Nicodemus do before they bury the body. They pack these spices round the body and wrap the spices up with the body. John tells us wrapping the body was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. But wrapping it with so much spices was not customary. 35 kilograms. Historians tell us the only occasions when such a large amount would be used was in the burial of kings. The New Testament tells us that after Jesus' birth, he was visited by magi. And those men recognized Jesus' royal status. And in acknowledgement of his status, they gave him appropriate gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And now here, at Jesus' death, Joseph and Nicodemus recognized Jesus' royal status also. And they gave him an appropriate burial. When we recognize the truth about the crucified son, it produces reverence in us. We want to give Jesus the honor he deserves. We don't treat him as our mate, 
whose job it is to give us what we want and get out of our way. Now, when we recognize the truth about him, we bow to him as our Lord and King. You and I can't anoint his body with expensive spices. We show our reverence to him in our obedience to him. We show it in our willingness to trust him even when we can't understand what he's doing. Just listening to Jesus' teaching won't produce that kind of reverence in us. Even seeing his miracles won't produce it. True reverence for Jesus comes when we consider his crucified body. And we come to realize what his death achieved. We come to realize the king of the universe died as an outcast. Rejected by his own people. Under God's curse. And he did it to bring us in from the cold. In from the hopelessness of sin and death into the family of God. Do you have that kind of reverence for Jesus? Have you been transformed from someone who sees Jesus as a genie in a bottle into someone who sees him as your Lord and King? Are you still thinking of Jesus as someone whose job it is to support your agenda and get behind your ambitions? Or have you come to see him as the one who deserves all the honor and worship and obedience you can possibly give him? Let's ask for his help to recognize him for who he truly is. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that helps us do that. The background to this song is that the Bible calls God our rock and our refuge. And this song says to Jesus, the Son of God, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. A cleft rock is a rock that's opened up for us. And on the cross, Jesus became the place of refuge opened up for us. So let's sing this together to the praise of our Savior.
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.